welcome back to Wizard Horror. I'm Brianna. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. I'm Mitz. And I am Steve. If you haven't joined us before, I won't chew you out like I did on last show. I'll just be okay with it and accept it, I guess. But I will describe to you how it works, which is basically that we will take a movie that is somewhat contested as far as its status as horror, and we're going to go do a deep dive on that movie to try and decide if we think that it is or isn't horror. Which, I guess, I've said this before on previous episodes, but bears repeating, this isn't an effort to gatekeep and tell you you're not a horror fan if you don't think the movie is horror that we're talking about or that you're wrong if you disagree with us it's basically just an exercise to kind of figure out what makes horror horror and uh, as horror fans we thought it'd be fun to just continue that quest and dig a little deeper and find out a little bit more about what makes this genre that we all love so well so thank you for joining us and i hope you'll have fun before we get into the movie that we're going to be talking about we have our favorite corner, the best corner of all, Joe's Get to Know You Corner. So I'll hand it over to Joe. Woo. Welcome to the corner. It's Joe's Get to Know You Corner. <laughs> we'll have a jingle someday. <laughs> we could just record what I did just then. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that was pretty good. We could just use that. Okay, well, the question for this week's episode is... What is a fantasy world that you like to play in as a child? Or what were some of your favorite things that you imagined? Or did you have an imaginary friend or anything like that? Uh, this was a toss-up for me between... All right, so public pool time in the summer. That's the only place we had to go in my town that wasn't my boring backyard or my boring house. So I lived at the pool and always played mermaids. Still the best. Uh, I'm going to be 40 this year and yeah. I just, I will still play mermaids to this day. <laughs> nice. Okay. Um, well, mine, I guess, two fair warnings. First, I'm probably going to be a little nerdy. And two is uh, this may get a little ranty, so hopefully it won't be too bad. But all right. So Star Wars has always been one of my favorite universes. And especially as a kid growing up with episodes four, five, and six. And I always loved uh, just the whole concept behind kind of the force. And, you know, um, a lot of the stuff Yoda says, like luminous beings are we. And, you know, the force, it's it's all around us. It surrounds us. It binds us. You know, the, we're all part of this thing. And side note, like my... Uh, current worldview is maybe not as fantastical or mystical, but I try to come at it with still a lot of the same ideas. I do think, you know, all of us have more similarities than we do differences, and we're all part of something bigger, and we're all literally made of stuff that's forged in stars. So I think there's a more reality-based thing to that whole idea. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. Anyway, as, as a kid growing up with some of those ideas, like I definitely tried to use the force, you know, <laughs> and there's just kind of that, that whole idea was, you know, if you are just in touch with it enough, like anybody could use the force. And 
Um, you know, anybody could be a part of that. And here's where it gets perhaps a little ranty. Enter episode one, The Phantom Menace, and fucking midichlorians enter the game. <laughs> and like, it just like completely threw all that out the window with like, oh, you you basically have to be born into it. You have to be lucky to be a part of this world. And you have, so frustrating. But anyways, all that to say that, yeah, as a kid, I thought a lot about Star Wars and thought a lot about what it meant to have the force and to be a part of that. So end of nerdy rant. I approve of this message. And may I just say that Jar Jar Binks makes the Ewoks look like fucking Shaft. Yes, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it's one of my favorite lines from... <laughs> you weren't there. You don't know how good it was. How important. <laughs> just had some stuff to work out. Oh, Sarah. <laughs> no, George Lucas. <laughs> it's like the best part of that whole show. Okay, so we're talking about the show, the TV show is based... <laughs> So I think it's my turn. Anyhow, um, <laughs> I would echo that if we had to talk about like specific fantasy worlds that we kind of were in a lot. Um, I did a lot of like fighting with lightsabers myself and also big into Harry Potter. So like kind of choosing which house you're in and pretending you're casting spells and I have a wand that I bought as a teenager which you know pretty nerdy stuff uh, but also I kind of think just like an unrelated to any sort of fantasy world was like I always used to play with my friends games where we were like in the woods and we would pretend that like people were chasing us or we were spying on people and um, I don't know because we had woods near our house and I think a lot of people in Pennsylvania and maybe in uh, every other place around the world can relate to just if you have woods near you going out mm -hmm. and doing nothing all day in the woods. <laughs> and so I did that a bunch. And so those are mine. Okay. I wasn't really sure if I was going to talk about this, but Matt thinks I should talk about this. <laughs> so um, I, how do I even start this? So I guess about five years ago, I was Googling things about myself and why I'm the way that I am. And apparently, since I was a very young girl, I've been doing something called maladap maladaptive daydreaming. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that. No. Basically, it's a not, not recognized psychological escape mechanism where you just daydream excessively. And I have been doing that since I was a little girl. And luckily, I, I, I have kind of gotten away from that since I started, like, depression treatment and all that good stuff, fun stuff. Um, but I just remember going outside and sitting. I probably look like a little creepy girl. But I, was, I would sit on my swing for hours and stare and just be in my head making up all these stories. It could be about anything. It could be based on a real movie or book or just my own, like imagination so I really relate to the people like Ophelia from the movie we're talking about today so it was hard for me to pick one fantasy world because ever since I was just a, like a little kid that's pretty much all I've 
lived in, I suppose. It's really sad to say this out loud, which is why I, I didn't know if I was going to share it. But even as a teenager, I just remember laying in bed and just making up stories. But I do think I have a pretty nerdy one that I'm not sure if anybody could relate to. My two best friends growing up as a kid were boys. So we did a lot of like playing, you know, I was always the token female chick. Um, I was always the Hermione or the Misty in Pokemon to those boys. But one that we did that I don't think anyone else ever did was there was this old movie from the 90s, Tom and Huck with Jonathan Taylor Thomas in it. If anybody remembers that one is Huckleberry yeah, Finn, Brad Renfro, like Tom Sawyer. Yeah, we we uh, we did Tom Sawyer role play as children. That's a unique one, I think. That was probably nice. my favorite one, though. <laughs> okay, I'm done. Did you paint every fence in the neighborhood? I wish. But we used to go like <laughs> you know we'd play in the woods, like Matt would say. But then we go on like there was a pond in my yard, and we had a boat, and we would pretend we were crossing the Mississippi. It was so nerdy. <laughs> That's awesome. I think for mine, I I wasn't really as much into the stories that were about like magic and wizards and bows and arrows. That never really was kind of my thing. But I always liked superhero comics and just comics in general. And so at least I had a lot of superhero action figures and comics. And I know I read plenty of those. But the thing that came to mind, I guess, most while thinking about this is that I used to, you know, play Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with my friends, that friend that lived down the street a couple houses. I, for a little while, maybe it was a long while, was writing a story that involved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So I would, I would sit there and I would play out what was going to happen in the story and then I would write everything down. And it was kind of weird, too, because I had this, like, superhero story that was going on amongst the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So they're, they're already, you know, mutant ninjas and turtles and teenagers anyway. But they're already superheroes in their own right. They don't need anything else. But I still had this thing where they got hit with, one of them got hit with some sort of mutagen that made them even more powerful. And so they wore a disguise and went out being a superhero outside of being a superhero with the rest of them. And... I don't know. I just wrote tons of stories about that and remember spending a lot of time on it, which I don't know. It's kind of funny. It's just the absurdity of it. It's like if Superman got more powers and then became another superhero outside of being Superman. Sounds OP. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that was the thing I spent a lot of time with. What superpowers did that turtle get and which turtle was it? I can't remember what additional powers they had. I remember I had them wearing a cape and a mask, which is a bit redundant. It's not like someone's going to see a Ninja Turtle in a cape and a mask and be like, oh, no, I have no idea who that is. Is that Mike from accounting? (laughs) I believe I had Raphael be the one that got the powers because he was usually my favorite. I knew you were going to say Raphael. I know. (laughs) It was it was kind of funny, too, because whenever we played Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I had the friend that lived down the street be Leonardo, and he'd always kind of be the leader telling everybody what to do. And then because I was playing Raphael, the thing that I would do was not listen and go off on my own and do my own thing. <laughs> <laughs> I miss those days. I love being a turtle. Now if you act like a turtle, everybody thinks you're crazy. Yeah, you can't just act like a turtle anymore. 
today's world, you know? Yeah, you have to covertly just think in your head that you're a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle while you're out doing normal tasks. Like, buying yeah. pizza is a good one to pretend that you're a Ninja Turtle, but just don't tell yeah. anyone, just think it to yourself. Just, like, slip a little, like, radical dude in there, you know? They don't have to know. <laughs> right. Cowabunga! <laughs> it's 1999, sir. Every time you're waiting for a pizza, pizza dude's got 30 <laughs> seconds. It's just a little thing for you personally. No one knows, but you know, and that's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for visiting Joe's Get to Know You Corner. And now that we're out of the corner, I'm going to go ahead and make sure to give you a big old spoiler warning for the movie that we're talking about, because I often forget to do that and go into the description beforehand. So spoiler warnings abound. Uh, this episode, we are talking about 2006's Pan's Labyrinth, which is directed by Guillermo del Toro. Uh, he's directed so many amazing things. It's pretty much me naming all of them. But anyway, there's Kronos, The Devil's Backbone, uh, Blade 2, Hellboy, Hellboy 2's, uh, Pacific Rim, Shape of Water, and more recently, Nightmare Alley and Crimson Peak, which uh, I haven't seen all of those movies, but they always have this very intense visual style. I'm sure if you've seen any of them, you're more than well aware of that and don't need me to tell you. So for this one, Pan's Labyrinth takes place in Spain in 1944 during the Spanish Civil War. Ophelia is a 10-year-old girl, and her and her pregnant mother, Carmen, are going to live with Carmen's new stepfather, the sadistic Captain Vidal, on a small farm in the Spanish countryside. While they're there, Ophelia finds an insect that is, or at least appears to be, a fairy, and leads her to the center of an old labyrinth on the outskirts of the property. There she meets the fawn, who tells her that she might be the reincarnation of Princess Moana, who lived a long time ago. And she also meets the housekeeper at the farm, Mercedes, who is secretly working with the Resistance. If Ophelia listens to the things that the fawn, that makes it sound like she met Mercedes in the labyrinth, but she didn't. She met her at the farm. Anyway, just FYI. The fawn tells Ophelia that if she completes three tests before the next full moon, then she will be able to take her place in the kingdom. Uh, meanwhile, Captain Vidal is shown to be an extremely brutal fascist who cares about very little beyond having a male heir and winning this war. As his army is kind of searching for the resistance fighters, Ophelia begins to complete her tasks, which the first of which is killing a large toad that's poisoning the base of this ancient tree. And uh, she's also goes into the Pale Man's lair. If you've seen this, you know who I'm talking about with the Pale Man. But she goes into the Pale Man's lair to retrieve a dagger, but she is not supposed to touch any of the food, and she does, which leads to a tense scene. She barely escapes, and the fawn basically comes and tells her that she done effed up, and so he's not going to help her any longer. Meanwhile, Ophelia's mother Carmen has also fallen ill during this time, and previous to the incident at the Pale Man's lair, the fawn had given Ophelia a, I believe he calls in the movie a mandrake, because I've heard of those before at least, to the Harry Potter universe, but they're different here. It is the Mandrake that he says, yes? yes? Yes, I believe that's correct. Yep. And so she is to put that in a bowl of milk underneath her mom's bed and feed it a little bit of blood every day. And if she does that, then her mom will get better. And so her mom seems to be doing better, but uh, eventually Captain Vidal finds the Mandrake under the bed and uh, is asking what it is, and then the mom is basically trying to tell Ophelia to, you know, this isn't real, this is a fairy story, so she 
ends up throwing it in the fire. And as the mandrake burns, her mother immediately becomes unwell again and is also in the throes of labor. Meanwhile, the uh, captain, he finds one of the resistance fighters and he calls on the only doctor they have there to keep the resistance fighter alive after he's tortured him quite a bit. And uh, it turns out the doctor is also part of the resistance, though, so instead of helping keep the man alive so he can give more intelligence and be tortured more, he assists him with his suicide and kills him. And at that point, the captain basically goes to the doctor and kind of confronts him about it, and the doctor basically goes out like a boss and tells him, you're a fascist and I don't care about helping you, and you do whatever you want to do. I don't have to follow your orders and disobeys. And so the captain shoots him. But at that point, he's unaware how sick that his wife has fallen, and so now he's left with no competent doctor to be able to help. And so he tells what medical help he does have to not worry about saving his wife, but to save the baby at all costs. And so his wife dies, and his son is born. Ophelia, meanwhile, hears back from the fawn at this point, who's had a bit of a change of heart, and tells her that if she will follow his instructions, then she'll still be able to pass the tests and take her place in the underground kingdom. Then the Captain Vidal finds out that Mercedes is also working with the Resistance, so he goes and captures her and brings her in, intending to torture her. In just a great scene, because she's basically like, you know how I was able to fool you? is because you don't think enough of women. And he's like, oh yeah, it was my pride, blah, blah, blah. And then he turns away from her, letting pride and stupidity take the better of him again. And Mercedes completely fucks him up like a boss, stabbing him several times and cutting his face really badly. And it's... It's great because he is just a dirtbag. Yeah, it's an awesome scene. Agreed. And uh, she makes her way into the woods and she's chased by Captain Vidal's men. But when it seems that they are about to get a hold of her, they're surrounded by the resistance fighters who take out pretty much all of them. And then their full force comes back to the camp. Meanwhile, the fawn has told Ophelia that she needs to get her brother. So she sneaks into Captain Vidal's quarters and steals her brother and is almost out of there with him when Captain Vidal, Captain Vidal sees her. So he chases her as she runs into the center of the labyrinth to try and bring her brother to the fawn, which she's able to bring the, her brother to the fawn, and he tells her that they will be able to open the gates to the underworld for her to join them if they sacrifice her brother. And she tells the fawn that there is no way that she's going to do that and that she will stay there if that's what she has to do, if that's the price. And just as she is saying this, Captain Vidal comes into the center of the labyrinth. He can only see Ophelia and her brother. He takes his son, Ophelia's brother, from her and then shoots her. At this point, Mercedes and the uh, rest of the uh, resistance fighters have taken over the farm. And so when the captain comes out of the labyrinth, he's confronted with all of the resistance fighters there having him dead to rights. So he hands over the baby. And then in another great scene is basically like, hey, you gotta, okay, that's fine. If you're gonna kill me, kill me, but you have to tell my son about me and tell him everything. And she's basically like, no, he's gonna forget you. We're never telling him anything about you. And then He's left with a shocked look on his face as he gets shot in the face. So then the resistance fighters, Mercedes at the lead, head to the center of the labyrinth where they find Ophelia, who has been shot and is just barely clinging to life. And uh, Mercedes cries over her while she dies. 
but it turns out that this sacrifice, this blood sacrifice of her own, is what's able to open up the way, and that it was the final test the Fawn was seeing if she would sacrifice her brother or if she would refuse in order to come to the kingdom. So she's passed this test, and so while in the physical world that we're seeing, she's passing away, she's her spirit, her self has been reborn into this underground world where she meets her real mother and real father and is taking her rightful place as Princess Moana. So I'm sure I have left off a great many details. It's a really good movie. Definitely see it. But let's go around and figure out if we think it's horror. So how does everybody weigh in on this one? Definitely has some dark scenes and dark themes, but it is not horror. This is a dark fantasy. Yeah, uh, that's where I ended up falling on it, too. I I really liked the movie, but uh, yeah, I, I don't call it horror. Yeah, I agree that it is not horror. It's dark, it's gritty, it's gory, but I don't think it's horror. This is like two episodes in a row where everybody agrees, because I also <laughs> said not horror, so... As unlikely as it was, we were all sure Lighthouse was, and as perhaps unlikely as it is again, all of us are in agreement with Pan's Labyrinth too. So yeah, I also said not horror, a lot of the same thoughts. I just said not horror because you have it on the script. It says not horror for me, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew what you were going to say, so there's no reason to even hear you say it, honestly. You should just leave, honestly. <laughs> Rude. All right. Well, um, I have a little, a couple quotes here from Guillermo del Toro about the movie, which it left it a little bit unclear for me exactly where he was at with it. But uh, at least one of them, so he's in an interview with Screen Anarchy, and he said, "For me, Pan's Labyrinth is a dark fairy tale in the classic sense." The settings of Anderson, the Grimm's brother, the Brothers Grimm, and Oscar Wilde were incredibly brutal. Hansel and Gretel were two children abandoned in the woods in the middle of a famine to die of hunger and cold. But you need to know the brutality of the reality of the magic to for the reality of the magic to happen. That's why the war made such a perfect backdrop. So anyway, at least the first part of that calling it a dark fairy tale. But then the other thing it confuses the issue a little bit later in the interview while talking about A Nightmare on Elm Street, which I'm sure most people would consider horror, he says, I think that really is one of the best fairy tales of any decade because Craven understood, understands the roots of those myths. So in some ways that seems at first like, okay, slam dunk, he doesn't think it's horror, but then at the same time, he's almost describing A Nightmare on Elm Street in the same category of film as his own. So that's a little ambiguous for sure. Um, Then I have another one here from Horror Channel where he was also interviewed. The interviewer said, um, The Zone Horror Fright Fest is a horror festival. Do you think Pan's Labyrinth is a genre film? Would you put it in that box? And Del Toro replied with, I belong in the festival. I don't know if the movie completely belongs in the festival, but I do. So therefore, I'm actually taking a risk. I'm actually saying it may not be the most emblematic film to begin Fright Fest, but I most certainly wanted to do it. This is the first screening after Kane's. I think I define my personality and the personality of my work by saying, what do we do right after Kane's? Fright Fest. There are two sides to the same craft, to the same person, and the same stories. So at least in that context, 
I think he's accepting that maybe it's adjacent to it, but it's not exactly horror. So at least that seems where he landed on it. But I thought uh, maybe the first thing we could discuss a little bit is I think all of us seemed willing to call this dark fantasy. So I wanted to see how each of you defined dark fantasy. Um, I think dark fantasy for me, uh, well, there has to be an element of the fantastical. There has to be, uh, I'm, I'm willing to say that if fairies exist, that it's probably fancy in some way, shape or form. Like there, there were so many parts of this movie where I was looking at, I'm like, oh my God, it's Satan's Tinkerbell. Like it was delightful, but <laughs> I think that there has to be that element of this is definitely a thing that we don't really think exists yet with, you know, we can get into cryptozoology later. Um, so yes, the existence of a fantastical creature, the dark element really just comes from the themes, the tone, the the look of the film. And this for me had all the components like perfect. I love this movie. One thing I was thinking about along these lines was I think fantasy has a it's a, akin to horror, I think, but they both have this a little bit. But fantasy and horror are both kind of they're they're like the uh, the emotion of real life experiences. Both have this heavy mix of symbolism and me- metaphor that kind of tie it all together. So I think when he's saying like that the war was the perfect backdrop to this, I think that's a really interesting idea because I I, I think it's a perfect idea. Because there's a, these horrible things going on in in the real world, quote unquote, and you know there's these men doing horrible things, and like they're these monsters, but you know in the real world you just see them as men. But the horror and fantasy element kind of show what monsters they really are, or what those acts really are, or how the emotion of those acts. I, I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but like. The emotion and the brutality of those is shown through this, you know, like super gory monster or something like that. And I think horror and fantasy, specifically dark fantasy, do that, show the emotion of it. Do you think it's fair to say that if magic exists as a concept in a movie that it could count as fantasy? I guess in a loose sense, that's not exactly how I would describe it. To me, it feels like it has to have some kind of element of folklore, fairy stories, something along those lines to qualify as fantasy. I think just magic existing in the universe isn't enough. For instance, at least for me, and maybe I'm 100% wrong in thinking this, but I wouldn't look at something, say, like The Prestige and say, hey, there seems to be some elements of magic throughout the film. Obviously, they're disproved or scientifically given at the end of it, but I wouldn't look at that movie throughout it and say that it was fantasy. I guess at least that's where I stand on it. Perhaps magic that isn't explained at some point or can't be explained at some point by magic or by science, I mean. Uh, Then we tread into, but magic and supernatural are different. That's a whole other podcast. (laughs) Right. The more I think about it, it is definitely a fine line between what is dark fantasy and what is horror. But I feel like if I had to say a difference, I feel that horror is perhaps more grounded in reality. Like you maybe feel like this stuff could actually happen to you. There's a sense of suspense. Whereas like in dark fantasy, 
I don't know. It it feels more like this is happening in a magical world. I also think that, you know, we're going to talk about probably mentioned Coraline a little bit later on here, but like just the idea of seeing it from a child's perspective also where like Ophelia is not looking at things like she's scared necessarily. She's like seeing these things with like a sense of awe and wonder. And um, so I think it's a little bit to do with how the character is reacting to the world that's presented to them. And also a little bit to do with whether or not it's grounded in reality a little bit more or not. Some of the other things I think of with dark fantasy, like some of the other like movies are like a never ending story. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, I guess at least a little bit labyrinth, like David Bowie labyrinth. Yes. hundred percent. Right. And they, those both kind of have like a children at the center. And they also like, I, I feel like they have kind of this, like it's magic and it's fun, but it's also like dark and like they might die kind of thing. Yeah. And honestly, I, I thought about in terms of dark fantasy, um, Coraline that we already talked about in a previous episode, which check it out if you haven't, I, I thought really qualified. And then in just trying to research a little bit more how people pin down dark fantasy, a lot of people just point to Pan's Labyrinth as a good example of it, which is, I, I you know hate kind of those recursive definitions of things. If you want to understand dark fantasy, watch Pan's Labyrinth. If you want to <laughs> define Pan's Labyrinth, then it's dark fantasy. So I, I think that gets maybe a little bit messy, but honestly, I agree with a lot of what people said here is that I think it's taking those fantasy elements and maybe applying a little bit of those horror elements onto it, but maybe not enough to tip the scale over. When I hear dark fantasy, I think of like an adult genre. Like when I hear fantasy, that's that's for all ages, right? You can sit down and watch a fantasy movie with your whole family. When I hear dark fantasy, going back to what Brianna said earlier, I feel like the dark comes from the themes of the story. It's especially if there's a child protagonist, I think what makes Pan's Labyrinth dark is that you you almost have to have experienced life to understand the trauma that is happening throughout the entire movie. Not just that it's dark, literally dark, as in the scenes are dark and, and gloomy and bleak, but the entire story is really grim. So for me, darkness would come from how, I guess, how realistic and just depressing the story is but then that 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 leaves out a lot of what other people would term dark fantasy like beetlejuice or something as i was listening to you talk i was thinking this story is basically like dark fantasy chronicles of narnia that's what i was <laughs> thinking too but i was yeah. thinking i mean you could take the story of the lion the witch in the wardrobe and make it dark fantasy by changing just a few details I really think that yeah. story's already set up to be dark, if you allow it to. And, and they kind of mirror each other, too, because it's like a little girl goes to a world that she's not familiar with, meets a fawn. Fawn has some things that she needs to do, becomes a princess. <laughs> it's yeah. like almost the same thing. In the midst of a war, right? In the midst of a yeah, war. In the midst of the 40s. <laughs> <laughs> so Pan's Labyrinth is kind of like Metal Narnia? Yeah. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm okay with this. I like it. It's funny because I was thinking about some of the similarities to Coraline, but I didn't even think about uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. But yeah, it's all there. I did want to, because it is a good segue, and we can, of course, continue talking about the similarities to the Chronicles of Narnia. But I guess one of the things I was sort of reminded about from the Coraline episode is there was at least that one interview where I saw Neil Gaiman talking about he wanted to answer the question of why tell horror stories to children. And he was talking about the concept of inoculating children against fear to a degree that they get to experience fear in sort of a safe environment so they can understand the motion emotion, become a little bit more in touch with it. So that when that way, when there are horrors that appear in their lives, that they're better equipped to deal with it. And uh, I think, I mean, Pan's Labyrinth does that in a great abundance. We'll talk about a little bit later, whether we think that the things happened are real or not, but there's clearly that escapism, right? In both Ophelia's character and Coraline's character of escaping into the imaginary, because it's hard to handle what's going on in the real world. Yeah. I think there's some very strong parallels, parallels there. I also think there's something to be said for both Coraline and this movie where at the end you could almost convince yourself that a lot of what was happening was sort of imagined, like things that were maybe coping mechanisms for the child. So that's something to consider too. So I was just thinking about Coraline and Chronicles of Narnia and that idea that you said, Matt, about like kind of at the end of it, you can kind of start like being like, okay, well, did that happen? And that that happens like to the kids in Chronicles of Narnia. They come out of Narnia and they have to like start like thinking about it a little bit more and like they start forgetting some of the details about it. And, you know, was that real? And, you know, the older sister actually ends up deciding that it wasn't real and that's why she's not able to come back later. But anyways, it's an interesting thought. As far as the fantasy elements in this movie, I'll go into in a moment what Guillermo del Toro had to say about it. But for each of you, did you think that the fantasy elements were real or do you think they were Ophelia's imagination? I think they're kind of the same thing. I think an adult would think that it was not real, but I think that any kid watching the movie would know it was real. Does that make sense? It's kind of that whole perception is reality. You kind of have some confirmation that at least some aspects of what she's doing are real. Like the captain finds the mandrake root under the bed, but it doesn't like move around or cry when any of the adults are kind of actively looking at it. So I think it's maybe like a little of column A, a little of column B. And there's also the scene at the end where the captain turns the corner and she's talking to herself with the baby. So I do, I think it's real to her only. So I guess that would make it in her head, right? But I think these things do all exist in the movie. I, how do I explain this correctly? Do you guys know what I'm getting at? No, probably yeah. not. Yeah. Never mind. I, I, I understand <laughs> what you mean. There's like, it's a very common thing in children's stories where like it's real to the child but when you become an adult you lose the magic you know what i mean is that what you're trying to get at i don't know i'm going back and forth on it 
on whether I believe that it was real or not. Because it does check out that these are all stories and games she would play with herself as a coping mechanism. And she's doing all these things in her mind and not really actually doing them. I don't know. I think one thing that I thought about when when thinking about this question was like from like Futurama, the whole like, oh, I dearly like to believe that it's real. So I will. <laughs> and it's just like, I, I really would like to have all the fantasy stuff be real because otherwise it is a really sad ending and a really just drab world. I guess, you know, when I'm being realistic about it, like I think it probably is all in her head, um, but there are things in the movie that that do like leave it just ambiguous enough that I think you could, it's a per- perfectly valid thing to believe that the fantasy parts are real. I guess what I was trying to say earlier was that I believe it was all in her head, right? It was all in her mind from her storybooks or whatever imagination. But I also believe that if Guillermo del Toro wanted to make another movie in another time period with another protagonist in the same labyrinth or the same universe, that I could believe that too. That this is a world that children go to to be saved from their real life. I also think there's he definitely has left it ambiguous enough that there's not really supposed to be one answer to this question either. Because there's enough physical evidence, you know, the book, the purse where she's carrying the fairies, the the dagger, the mandrake. There's enough physical evidence that these things are happening, but there's but all of it's only happening from the perspective of a child. So I think it's definitely purposefully evoking the idea of whether this could be real or not and purposefully not giving you a concrete answer. Yeah, I guess for me looking at it, I believe that the fantasy elements are real. That's at least my interpretation of it while watching it. And with that in mind, I guess to describe it is that this would be these fantastic elements. They physically do exist. They exist external of Ophelia, regardless of whether she was there or ever found them, they exist, but that it's simply for whatever reason She's the only one that's able to see some of the more magical elements, so specifically seeing the fawn, seeing the fairy as it actually is, and then some of the more physical slash mundane objects involved along with that any person would be able to see. So for instance, Captain Vidal being able to pick up and see the chalk. So I guess that's the way that I looked at it. I felt like there was at least some hints in the movie about those things too, because there's her basically using the chalk to move from one place to the other that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. And then seeing her have the labyrinth open up for her and then Captain Vidal going to the same spot and it being closed and clearly no way out. Mm-hmm. Obviously it's left open to interpretation. I agree the movie is designed such that you can choose whichever way you want to see it and it's correct enough. But uh, yeah, I guess I choose to see those things and say that, yeah, I, I think that there are enough evidence for me to accept them as real in this world. Yeah, I guess on the other side of that, like, I think there is a case to be said that if it is all in her head, if it is all just fantasy, like all those things could be explained. Like she 
might have found all that stuff while just playing around in the labyrinth. She might have found the, you know, the box or the root and just made up the story in her head. She might have found the chalk and just all all of it is just a fiction that she's using as a coping mechanism. The drawing the chalk on the door, maybe she did that, but still just snuck through the house like she would have regularly and been able to make her way there. The captain was drugged at the time when he was wandering through the the labyrinth, so he might have just gotten totally lost, and she imagined that she was able to get away from him because the labyrinth let her. I don't like that as much. I'd rather believe the other way, but I think there's a case for the other way as well. I wanted to ask then, along with that, whether you thought it was real or not, how did viewing the fantasy elements as real or imagined influence your classification of the movie as horror? If you thought they were real, would you feel differently about the movie if they were imaginary and vice versa? I'm still holding on to they were definitely imaginary um, and in her head, no matter how real those characters may have been to her. I think that if those characters had been presented as real and like Mitt said, we are kind of seeing this this alternate world that's accessible by children, I still don't think it would make it horror for me. And had it just been about that separate world, maybe it, maybe I could say that it's children's horror. But honestly, the stuff that was going on in the real world in her real life was way worse than other uh, than the other stuff she saw. I mean, there are rules that you can abide by in that fantasy land, you know? She kind of, you know, screwed the pooch, so to speak, when she went after the, uh, what are we calling him? The the white man? The uh, eyeless man? What are we calling him? I think they call him the pale man in a lot of material, so. The pale man. Okay, so had she just a abided by the rules of the pale man, nobody would have gotten hurt. I'm just pointing that out. So I think that even though um, even though I do still think those characters are a fantasy and didn't actually exist in the movie, the stuff that went on in the real world was just too terrible. Like it was, this was hard to watch. I remember the first time I saw this movie, I didn't know anything about it. Um, and I assumed it was just like a straight, happy-go-lucky fantasy. And oh, shit, did I get my dreams dashed. I was like sitting in, in the movie theater going, what the hell is going on right now? I thought this was a kid's movie. Oh, like it was it was traumatic. Yeah, it's terrible. And I, th- I think for me, it was a thing at the end of the day, this for me was a, a war movie more than anything else. And war movies yeah, are Yeah, agreed. Yeah, as a pale man that doesn't like to share his food, I would, um, I feel definitely still that the real world elements are more horror than the fantasy ones. I think maybe if it was like the pale man was in the real world and everybody was afraid of him and he was chasing everybody and everybody had a chance of dying and there's like suspense kind of element to that then maybe it's horror but i don't think that particular scene kind of makes it more horror if you know what i mean i think that the it's still kind of the the real world stuff is more horrifying than that part yeah like i was not as worried about her being caught by pale man as i was by her being caught by vidal I call him Captain Fascist Pants. That's a fair name. (laughs) I hate that guy. 
He's such a perfectly terrible character. Yeah, perfectly terrible. He was awful. Like, I hated his face. Hated. I cheered every time he got hurt. Do you think you would give him a little cheek? <laughs> He's a little cheeky. Get it? <laughs> so I guess to kind of dig into that side of it, it sounds like kind of I've had the answer already in everybody's minds, but did you find the the monsters or Captain Vidal more horrifying between the two? Absolutely the captain. Yeah, he Agreed. sets the tone pretty early of being just absolutely terrifying, so. Yeah, the scene where he just like brutally kills the guy with the bottle. Yeah, yeah. Oof. So I remember watching this movie this movie was on somewhere at, when I was a kid. It was just, like, on someone's TV. I don't know why. But I remember, like, starting to watch it because it, it starts off like such a nice movie, you know? You think it's, like, some kind of Narnia stuff. And then that scene came on. That's the one that kept me from watching the rest of the movie and ever watching this movie ever again. The one with the bottle. Ugh. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah. Yeah, that was hard to watch. And then not only is that horrible to watch, but the follow-up of, oh, their story was true, and I don't feel shit about this. <laughs> yeah, that made my belly hurt. Mm. Yeah, it just <laughs> tells his soldiers, oh, this is, you didn't search them? Oh, well, that's on you, I guess. What a shithead. Yeah, the gore was really explicit. I think that this movie, and maybe it's because... It is, you know, based on a historical event that happened. We all know that atrocities happen in wartime and, you know, nobody learns their lesson. We keep on doing it. But it was so brutal and so stark. And like I that that first, you know, explicit violence with, you know, beaten to death with a bottle just went through me like a knife, like literally more so than, you know, all of these other films that we've been watching where clearly it's it's splatter splatter films. I don't know. This was just this was too real for me to to be to provide like the catharsis that what I find to be true horror provides me. This was too real for me. It was more horrifying than horror. <laughs> Correct. Gore. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Is it gore? And we didn't even talk about either like what he does to Pedro's hand and how he leaves Pedro is like Ugh. gave me some real like Negan Walking Dead vibes kind of how he leaves him you know what I mean yeah for sure do you know what made that scarier is that they didn't they alluded he basically told him he was going to hurt him real real bad and they didn't show it and then they only showed the aftermath which was like quiet suffering somehow that's worse I don't know do you feel that because we were in this war setting, that despite all of that violence, despite all of that gore, that that is part of the reason why it doesn't feel like horror? If we took it out of the war setting, if we had this guy as a, a gang leader or a mafia boss or something like that, and he's still doing the exact same things, do you think that that would tip it into the horror category for you? Does the war setting change things? The war setting absolutely changes things. That is that is a level of reality that, I don't know, completely takes me out of the, the fantasy realm of horror. Mm -hmm. 
I think that if we had decontextualized the cruelty and had we kept it, like you said, as a mob boss, et cetera, and just sort of like random bad dude to reinforce the good and evil uh, juxtaposition, I still don't think it would have been enough to make it horror. It would feel a lot like Green Room, I think, <laughs> which you guys covered a long time ago before yeah. I was on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there you go. I was going to mention that too, that the war doesn't change the category for me, if that's what we're, the question that we're asking. War. War changes everything. <laughs> war never changes. Because if we're going to say that, then we have to say every movie with the violent evil protagonist or antagonist i should say is horror you know right then that gets a little too broad i don't know if it at least for me anyway necessarily goes to that realm with it i guess just looking at this one in particular but i can see what you're saying i guess i'm disagreeing that's all how dare you i know how dare you i'm a monster <laughs> How did you feel about the contrast between the real world horrors and the fantasy horrors? I mean, we talked about a little bit the idea that maybe because the fantasy horrors were quarantined in a way, they weren't coming after anyone, they couldn't get to anybody, that made it different. Is maybe that a big element in why this doesn't end up feeling horror for people is that the fantastical horror elements are entirely quarantined. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, and I and I would also say that the fantasy portions of things aren't really like an antagonist for the most part in the movie. Yeah. That's her home realm. Yeah, allegedly. Even when the pale man comes after her, you don't necessarily feel a ton of danger in that situation because he does eat the fairies. But she kind of brought it on, too, by not following the rules. So it is a scary moment, but it's not, like, horror, necessarily. It's almost like it's almost like if you see a scene in a movie where there's a no trespassing sign, and then a kid trespasses, and they get into a problem. Do you blame the sign, or the environment, or do you blame the kid? <laughs> but that's also the way that almost every slasher movie operates. There's something figurative or literally a sign telling you or a person telling you this area is cursed this area is dangerous if you go there you will die and then the people in the movie of course trespass and then of course they end up dying so what i guess makes this situation different than that situation what makes the slasher movie where they're trespassing and perhaps getting what they deserve what makes that horror but this one not I see what you mean. I guess it's probably because, no, you know, he doesn't actually end up doing anything to anybody, really. <laughs> Except the fairies. Yeah, but they're just fairies, you know? Yeah, that was pretty gross. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> um, the fairy eating scene? Okay. You have to understand... I felt really, really f special because some part of my education actually paid off. Because as I'm watching that fairy eating scene, I'm like, damn, that looks a lot like a Goya painting. So I looked it up and I was right. <laughs> they actually utilized this uh, Goya painting, who I believe was a Spanish artist. And um, it's called Saturn Eating His Children or something to that effect. Look it up. It's like it. you can match it up with the frame. It's creepy. 
Okay, yeah, I'm looking at that right now. I can kind oh, of see what you mean. Yeah, that is a really funny looking painting. It's so bizarre. And then, and then while you're at it, look up uh, Hieronymus Bosch's uh, "The Garden of Earthly Delights." I think it's the the one uh, panel. It's it's the Prince of Hell, but basically, it's like that whole you know creepy things eating other creepy things, and it's just it's a whole vibe. Ooh. I've seen the Garden of Earthly Delights, that one before. It kind of gets mentioned. I forget if it's specifically mentioned or just mentioned in conjunction with the Dark Tower because it people point to it as uh, at least a parallel, if not an outright inspiration for the Tahine in that series where it's basically humanoids with animal heads. You say true and I say thank you. This is creepy. Is everyone looking at the photos <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm looking Let's at check it out. Yeah. the garden one. Sorry, I didn't mean to send you all down a Google rabbit hole, but I found it interesting. <laughs> There's so much going on, I don't even know what to look at first. I know, right? Art history is fun when it's, like, satanic. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's fun when it's satanic. Put that on a t-shirt. This is true. This is true. I guess to uh, back to Steve's point about that part being pretty similar to a lot of like slasher themes as far as like, if you do what you're supposed to, you won't get in trouble. Like, I think that's true. I think for me, the difference was it was localized, like we're saying. And it was just a moment of that. It would have been different if, say, the pale man gets out and starts like eating random soldiers and doing terrible things. That might have shifted the... Oh, that would have been so great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would have maybe made it more... I'd be willing to see that remake. <laughs> and that would be horror, right? I would agree, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that... It was would... like the pale man tearing through this whole battalion of assholes. Well, I'm here for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I think that would have been interesting, but I think it would have made it a lesser movie, too. I think yeah. part of the part of how good this movie was was how brutally horribly true to life the war movie was yeah i'm still here for pan's labyrinth 2 judgment day though <laughs> <laughs> only if they bring bring back D doug jones <laughs> yeah do you think that it's harder to blend horror and war or i guess another question along with that too is does it make a difference that the horrors that are occurring are also part of a real war that actually occurred like if we were talking about some fantasy world or some other alternate history where a war happened and we're getting some of these elements does that change anything because we're all looking at war and we're saying yeah this kind of thing probably really happened but if you take that out does that make a difference that's a lot of things i know sorry I think that if it was, yeah, if it was a a war that didn't actually happen, that wasn't didn't have context in reality, it would change it. I still don't think it would make it horror, though. I think that it's. I think that it would be hard for anyone who's familiar with and and let's be real, like the war that they're referencing in this movie isn't that long ago, you know. Yeah, it's like really there are still people who. Yeah, it's not that long ago. We're not talking about Sparta here, folks. It's just too real. And I think that the the thing about horror that makes horror so great is it is a complete departure from reality. It might be in a realistic setting, but the nice thing about horror is we get to turn the movie off at the end and be like, yep, well, that's just a nice little story. Mm -hmm. Yay. Can't do that when there's an actual war going on. Right. This sits with you. <laughs> 
And like you say, you're like, I don't know. I feel like at least in my head, I'm dancing around it a little bit, but like just everything that's happening in Ukraine right now, I'm just thinking, I thought to myself yeah. while we're watching this, like some of this shit is probably happening like now. Yep. Yep. I know this debate does come up a lot about like horror movies versus war movies, but I, ju I really just don't have any experience in particular. I'm sure that there's, movies that we all would say are horror movies that take place with a war as a backdrop but i've just never seen any of those i don't have any experience to say like if they made it horror or if they didn't make it horror or whatever it is you know army of darkness hello yeah army of darkness <laughs> happened in the uh deadite war of 1957 <laughs> correct that that's my kind of horror war film right there army of darkness we have it Perfect example. I stand corrected. <laughs> and it's one of those things, uh, you know, obviously Army of Darkness, perfect example, but uh, <laughs> there are horror movies or at least debatably horror movies. And I think that's what you end up with, at least a little bit in this category that take place during war or at least about war. Um, I, I look at Jacob's Ladder as a horror movie and it's kind of about, you know, the traumas experienced because of Viet the Vietnam War. And some of it takes place during that. Then there's, I guess, other kind of different versions of that because you get also on the other side of just the more absurd side of those things, things like Dead Snow or all the movies now dealing with like Nazi zombies since that's still kind of somewhat in vogue. Mm -hmm. uh, you get other movies like Overlord, which is a zombie movie that takes place during World War II. So I guess there's some things like that that exist um i know there's a few other examples but at least those are the ones that readily came to mind i think it's doable to do a war horror movie but i think it's hard i think once you start introducing some of those elements it it takes away from it takes away from it being a good war movie and by good i mean you know horrifying like i don't know i think like i i think about pan's labyrinth if the, if the pale man did get out i would still like it and still think it's a good movie but it wouldn't have the same like resonance of like a traumatic war movie to me because it just mm -hmm. it brings the fantasy into reality yeah i agree with that okay so i guess just to kind of bring this concept up because i'm curious to see how people respond to it so at least it sounds like, and you can correct me if I'm misunderstanding people's views on it, but the idea that some of these things took place or are taking place in the real world changes it from sort of a horror escapist experience to more of a, a real world setting. You have to think about it in different terms as a person. It's about how the risk is perceived. Mm -hmm. I think in a more traditional horror movie, we're going to be like, ha ha, that'll never happen to me. And maybe it will and maybe it won't. But, you know, war, unfortunately, is something that can absolutely touch every person. So where does that put us when we start looking at a true crime setting sort of horror? So now we're taking the war element out of it, but we're saying here is a movie, a film version made of a true serial killer, murder, someone that did something horrific to a person that actually happened. So say you're looking at something like the movie Zodiac, where it's detailing what the Zodiac killer actually did to people. I think 
and it's been a while, but I think I would probably look at Zodiac as a horror movie, and I would look at movies detailing things similar to that, although not based on true events like, say, for instance, Seven, and I would say, yeah, those are horror movies, but they're also things that either have or could actually happen to somebody. So if you view those things as horror, what's the difference between that and a war film? I don't think I can... I can't think of a serial killer type. I mean, even Zodiac, I don't know that I would consider that a horror film. But that's another podcast. <laughs> what about, like, Silence of the Lambs, per se? Not horror. <laughs> that's controversial. That's fighting words. <laughs> Very. It's right up there with my opinion about Alien. I know, I know. I don't know. It's not horror. I'm sorry. True crime for me can't really be horror unless it's a situation like Seven, which I do think is horror. That's a whole other episode we can go into, but there are differences in the way that the material is presented and the fact that something may or may not have actually happened for me plays a big part in it. I need I need the suspension of belief that it happened to someone else in a state far, far away and it would never happen to me. And if I don't have that sense, it can't be horror. Because the horror of it is too real. Correct. I was trying to think of, like, say Halloween. So everything, for the most part, in the first Halloween movie that Michael Myers does is stuff that I'm sure has happened to people in real situations somewhere in the world at some time. Apart from maybe, like, being shot several times and not getting up. So I'm like thinking what makes Halloween horror to me, but not the ice truck killer in Dexter. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think it's that's hard. It's hard to say that. Is it the escapism of it? Maybe, maybe it is like because earlier I talked about how I think horror is a little bit more grounded in reality than dark fantasy, but at the same time horror is not grounded enough in reality that I'm going to be actually frightened of it. I don't know. It's Yeah, I don't know. I, I think maybe I'm agreeing with Brianna that true crime just doesn't end up being horror for me. I don't know. Yeah, it can still be frightening, but it's it's just not, it does not sit the same. Dark fantasy is way out there horrors kind of somewhere in the middle than like a war movie or true crime movie or something like that is just too close to home to be able to call it horror well it's interesting because then we're basically sitting here with this definition of pan's labyrinth and we're saying it's two elements it's a war movie and it's dark fantasy and one of them's too real to be horror and one of them's too fake to be horror <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. <laughs> and somehow the movie works flawlessly. I don't know how, yeah. but it all makes sense in the end. And it does all, we did all say it wasn't horror, so it's not like it's not supporting <laughs> what we said. Right. It just didn't, didn't find that middle ground of being horror, but it's still, it's an excellent movie. I think for me... So I think a horror movie needs a consistent threat throughout the movie, right? Whether that's one monster, several monsters, several bad people, supernatural elements, whatever. It needs a consistent threat. And in this movie, 
in my opinion, the only consistent threat is Captain Vidal, but he's not targeting the protagonist for the most part. I mean, at the end, of course, he chases her down and takes her brother, but for the most part, he's not threatening to the protagonist. He's just, he's a little bit, like, of an asshole to her, but he's not trying to harm her throughout the movie, as would be in a typical horror movie. What about films, though, like uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, where it's kind of more of almost an anthology format? You've got the same characters you're following all the way through, but they're dealing with different antagonists throughout that film, not a central thing necessarily. Hmm. I'm playing devil's advocate all over this episode. I would say, still say, since those <laughs> protagonists are being threatened directly by whatever monster it is in that scenario that's what makes it horror so if that's the case how come the pale man sequence isn't enough to make the entire film horror i'm not saying that that's the wrong view just curious well i do think that that scene is horror but it's not i just don't think it's long enough and it's not as pivotal in the story to me now if the pale man was like the main bad guy I think that would change the entire movie. But it would also make it much less of a good movie. So She broke into his house while he was taking a nap, being perfectly content at his own table full of food, and she had the nerve to put her unwashed hands on those beautiful grapes. I'd be pissed I mean, off too. <laughs> well, it's a... The one job. So, the one job. Just don't eat the grapes. Come on. But I guess what, uh, one thing I was thinking about is, as far as that one scene, that one scene is maybe horror, and I, I think I could get behind that. But it, it's sort of like the idea of, say, I mean, it could be put into any number of movies, but just since we've talked about it recently, Terminator comes to mind, where there are a few uh, romance scenes, but whether you think that movie is horror or not, I mean, I think it's horror or action, but you wouldn't call that movie a romance. At least not as it's I first sure would. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go again. Cross time and space for her or some romantic crap like that. Blow wave in the hair. I'm telling you, it does it for me. Well, okay, so, but those are those are definitely like strong romantic elements to the movie, but they're brief. And I would, I guess I would argue that the movie is more of an action or horror or something else or sci-fi before it's a romance. You wouldn't call it a romance or I wouldn't, I should say I wouldn't call it a romance just because of the couple of romance scenes in it. But would you say it's a romantic movie if they did have an extended sequence of them at Applebee's? Ooh, ooh, yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Coupon included. <laughs> God damn it. Come full circle. I was just going to ask if now's a good time, because I made a bunch of notes about things that maybe were like lost in translation or just related to the Spanish. Yes, but before you begin, I am very proud of myself. Not only did my art history come in handy, but I remembered no me jova. That's the only thing I understood in the whole film. <laughs> That's one of the best lines in the movie, too. It is. He's like, who told you the kid was going to boy be a boy? He's like, no joda. <laughs> He's like, don't fuck around with me, bro. It's definitely a boy. I fucking know it. 
<laughs> so yeah, sorry. Is that a, is it a good time to talk about that? <laughs> yes. Go ahead and take it from there and let us know what you found. Uh, so there's a couple things that I just wanted to mention. Things that are like translational. So one thing in one of the scenes, her mom says "Virgen Santísima." And they, the subtitles say Jesus in that scene, but she's really talking about the Virgin Mary. So I think that's kind of more related to like Spanish-Mexican culture where Catholicism focuses a lot more, a lot more on the Virgin Mary. And they probably thought like mainstream audiences in English might relate more to saying Jesus there. I don't know. And then also the line, I just thought it was a cool line where he says no joda about the kid being who told you it was a boy. One of the things that I think is really important, too, is that the fawn speaks in vosotros, which if you are familiar with Spanish, vosotros is more like formal language used in the Bible and used uh, like with kings and queens. It's kind of like thee and thine and shall and those kind of things in English. So a Spanish language audience would have looked at him as he's specifically talking to her like royalty then. Yes, exactly. And uh, he's the only one in the film that speaks that way. Also, I noticed that they interchange the words for mountain and forest a lot of the time. So sometimes they'll say monte, which means mountain, but it, the translation says forest. So the mountain and the forest are kind of used interchangeably. One thing also that happens is uh, like when he's getting the tobacco, he says, que tabaco, and the translation is, this is real tobacco, which is not really what he's saying there. He's just saying it's really good tobacco, not this is real tobacco. Uh, the, other, the other thing that I thought was kind of significant is when they're all at the table and the captain says they're all there por gusto, and they translate that to by choice, but por gusto actually means they're there because they like to be there because they like being there rather than because they chose to be there kind of similar but a little bit of a different translation and then yeah that's pretty much it the the fawn the fawn calls the kid a brat in english but the translation there is mocoso is what he says in spanish which literally translates to like snotty-nosed kid which is kind of like a common word that's used in Spanish to mean like brat, basically the same kind of deal. So those are my notes about the Spanish. I thought it was interesting about the, the type of language that the fawns using. Of course that was completely lost on me. Never would have noticed that. So that's interesting that they made that choice. I think I saw that in one of the comments of a review page that someone also mentioned that the fawn speaks, the fawn Spanish sounds almost like another language than everyone else is speaking. Which, now that you say that, checks out. Fun fact, uh, the actor who played the fawn, Doug Jones, is in literally all the movies that I like. He's amazing. But I found out that he was actually speaking his lines in Spanish. He, of course, is not a native Spanish speaker at all. And apparently it was so terrible that it just made filming hilarious apparently and every time i see his character because i think that was all practical makeup effects wasn't it or did they cgi him i know they cgi'd his legs i think that it's mostly practical as usually is the case with del toro's films because they were talking about how he couldn't sit while he was in costume either 
Yes. So you can see the prosthetics like moving with his mouth. And there are some scenes when you can tell that like he he is not a master of this language that he's speaking, but he gave it his damnedest. And it just, I don't know, amusing fun fact. I got to say, if he doesn't speak Spanish, he did an incredible job because it sounds like it's someone that speaks Spanish to me. I don't know if the voice was him, but I know that he had to actually mouth the words. I'm not sure. I will have to look that up now. No, I think you're right. I think it's two different actors. They might have done a voiceover because whoever was speaking for him clearly speaks Spanish. And speaking in that form of Spanish is a lot more difficult, something that a layman wouldn't be able to do. He was dubbed over by Pablo Adan. There you go. Which is not too surprising because a lot of Doug Jones's costume work ends up being dubbed over. It happened in Hellboy when he played Abe Sapien. It happened in Fantastic mm-hmm. Four, the second movie when he played the Silver Surfer. So I, I don't know if maybe it's a little bit harder for him to talk under those extreme makeup settings. But I know at the same time, too, he actually did voice Abe Sapien in Hellboy 2. So I'm not sure if maybe it's more like you're a good makeup creature feature actor but maybe we don't care so much for your line delivery well if you ever want to have a doug jones appreciation episode i am on board just putting that out there he does fantastic work he did the pale man too right yes yes he did Mm -hmm. did anybody have any other thoughts they wanted to share i think we basically covered one way or another most of the questions that i had written down this movie had too many feels to be horror that is my final summation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Too many feels. Kills it for me. No pun intended. <laughs> Rest in peace. Well, I did want to share kind of what I was able to find as far as um, how different, because this is the thing I've been doing at the end of these episodes, I guess more recently, is how it's tagged in various searches and streaming services. And uh, had at least three that were willing to call out horror, um, YouTube, Amazon Prime, and then Redbox. Although Redbox's calling it horror means a lot less because Redbox also called it fantasy, drama, suspense, action, and adventure. And they really just threw the whole shebang at it as far as tags go. So there's that. Um, Wikipedia called it dark fantasy. Google, Apple TV, YouTube, and IMBD, IMDB called it fantasy. As far as drama goes, you had both Google Search and Google Play, YouTube and IMDb and Redbox all calling it drama. The only place that called it a war movie, curiously, was IMDb, which I thought was a little strange. I would have thought that tag would have come up more often. Yeah, that's crazy to me. But yeah, there's a lot more of a spread on this one as far as how it was defined than some of the other movies that we've talked about. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I wonder if they just tagged it horror because of the gore. That could be. I think that there's that side of it. And I think that some of what Del Toro had to say in the quote that I read earlier kind of counts too, is I think a lot of people do look at him and say, this is a horror director. And uh, maybe Mm -hmm. Pan's Labyrinth doesn't entirely fit in that box, but it's Del Toro. So we'll go ahead and say horror. And I wonder if they didn't tag it war as much because your general demographic for war movies isn't really going to like the fantasy side of this movie most likely 
I think we could have a whole other show on the fact that getting this made in the first place was a bit of an uphill battle all the way around from the sounds of it. Mm -hmm. I didn't dig real deep into it, but at this point he'd made a couple big deal superhero movies and so a lot of studios were like, all right, what superhero movie do you want to do next? And he's like, I want to do a lower budget fantasy war film. And everyone's like, what? And then he's like, and it's going to be in Spanish. And they were like, what? And... (laughs) So he was having a lot of trouble in the studio system trying to get this made and marketed, which I think you can almost see a little bit on the trailer side of it, too, because, I mean, it's a good movie and the trailer's enough to get you interested. But as I think some of us have already talked about in our experience with it, it doesn't really explain what the movie is exactly. Yeah, the trailer has that, like, action movie voiceover guy that, I don't know, it just doesn't fit with the film very well. All right. Well, thank you for joining us on another episode of Is It Horror? Uh, Next time, in honor of the Evil Dead video game that is coming out, we are going to be talking about Evil Dead 2. So join us back here for that. And uh, otherwise, thanks, and we'll see you soon. I've been Steve. I've been Brianna. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. And I am Mitz. Bye. 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 Thanks for joining us at Is It Horror? We post new episodes every other Friday. Think we didn't give this movie a fair shake? Think we missed something? Do you have a suggestion for future episodes? Or did you just want to say hi? If so, you can follow us at Is It Horror on Twitter, on Instagram at Is It Horror Pod, or you can email us at Is It Horror Podcast at gmail.com. In the meantime, stay safe and keep asking yourself Is It Horror?